Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching. Fashion trends. Pep talks where we give advice. Mental health moments. And games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com Hello, and welcome to the 404 Media Podcast, where we bring you unparalleled access to hidden worlds, both online and IRL. 404 Media is a journalist-founded company and needs your support to subscribe. Go to 404media.co. As well as other bonus content, subscribers can hear us answer their questions in future podcasts. Ask us anything you want on podcasts at 404media.co. I'm your host, Joseph, and with me are 404 Media co-founders, Sam Cole. Hello. Emmanuel Mayberg. Hello. And Jason Kebler. My mom asked me why you always say my name last. She it's called and she called me. At the end. <laughs> she called me and she was like, "Why does Joseph say your name last all the time?" It's to give you perfect opportunity to riff like that. Yeah, to give little pithy comments. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I listened to the podcast last week and it was really good. All business. No, none of this riff raff. Oh, is that the one where you weren't here? Yes. Yeah. It was yeah. great. I really enjoyed it. It was straight yeah. to the point. Uh, well, saying that, I am actually going to take take us on a on a detour because we are shaking up the format a little bit. You know, uh, if you're a new listener, I'm just going to explain to you. Obviously, if you're already listening to previous episodes, you know this. But we typically talk about two stories, right, or two themes. We'll start with one. We'll talk about that for 10, 15 minutes. We'll have a break. Uh, we come back and then we do the other one. We're doing that 
but we're adding a bit onto the end now, which is going to be a third story or topic only for um, paying subscribers. You know, and there's a couple of reasons for that. The first is that we want to give those paying subscribers uh, uh, more value. You know, uh, you're paying, you are the engine that powers our journalism and this podcast and basically everything we do. And we want to give like a little bit back to you as well. Um, And I guess just the sort of one of the other reasons is that to be very transparent with you, if you're a free listener, you listen to this and you hear these programmatic ads from, I don't know, I think there was an Amazon one and the GoDaddy one and that sort of thing, very normal advertisements. And they're much closer to the sort of thing you would see in your web browser. You know, you go to a page and it programmatically and automatically delivers you an advert. That's what's happening there. You know, I'm not reading any of those uh, adverts, right? That's all well and good. But to be real with you, they generate pennies in revenue. You know, we're not some massive media company yet. So as it has been from day one, uh, we are primarily funded by subscribers. So it's to give them value. And also, if you're a free listener, maybe you would want to switch and gain access to those extra stories uh, as well. I mean, we publish a ton of good stories every week. Honestly, it's hard to actually select which ones we're going to talk about. So if anything, it's a great opportunity to be able to talk uh about some more of our stories as well. Um, Jason, I feel like you were going to say something. I'm looking right now and made $11 from uh, Uber Canada. So, Dude, there we go. There we go. Yeah. I guess that means we have listeners in Canada. I, I, haven't, I haven't looked at the data. <laughs> I need to do that. Um, but One look. of our top advertisers is Staples, which is really cool. I'm yeah. a big fan of Staples. I went there the other day. Their envelopes are so expensive. Like, I I did not buy their envelopes to ship the um, 404 Media merch because I couldn't afford it because they're not paying us enough in advertising rates and because their envelopes are, like, incredibly expensive. It's, like, $1.50 an envelope. Hey, Staples, if you want to actually sponsor the podcast and get in touch and we can talk about your expensive (laughs) envelopes, uh, let us know. Um, Staples, you can sponsor our merch shipping. That's a good... That's good product integration. I mean, that will save us spending on it. Yeah, for sure. Um, but look, thank you for hearing me out on that change. We'll see how it goes, but I'm really looking forward to it. And I, I think it will be um, a good change for everybody. On this first story, this is one uh, written by Emmanuel. YouTube is monetizing human suffering at an open air drug market. Um, this is a complex story, a lot of different parts. Emmanuel, first of all, this story is mostly about a particular live camera feed. Before we get into all the YouTube bit, like literally what is this camera feed showing? Like, like where is it and what is it looking at? So this live stream is from a camera that is situated uh, above a corner and SEPTA train station in Kensington's... Uh, Sorry, in Philadelphia's Kensington neighborhood. Um, This is sort of a notorious place where um, people uh, congregate and uh, use drugs. Um, It is one of the country's so-called open-air drug markets, which, um, 
you know, most people, when I talk to them about Kensington, the, their point of reference is um, Hamsterdam and The Wire, which uh, if you've seen the show at some point, the way that uh, Baltimore tries to deal with the drug problem is kind of designate a few blocks and say, like, everyone uh, who uses drugs can come here and we're like, the police is not going to mess with you. Um, that's not exactly what's happening in Philadelphia. Like, I did talk to the police about it and I was like, hey, are, do you enforce drug and like, is there drug enforcement there? And they said, yes, it's like, absolutely. It's not legal. It's not like we don't make arrests. We do make arrests. But at the same time, Kensington, um, like, I don't know, Jason, maybe Skid Row is a good comparison um, in Los Angeles. It's just a place where it's tolerated more. It's not enforced as much. And it's where people who use drugs know that like they can go. Um, and do it there and not um, necessarily be harassed by police as often um, as opposed to if you were to do it in some, I don't know, fancy. I, I'm not an expert on this, so I'll keep my comments short. But uh, I know that in Skid Row, for example, which is a neighborhood in downtown L.A., it's like there's a lot of unhoused uh, encampments there. And historically, there has been and there's a lot of drug use there. And. There's a lot of, but there's also a lot of like homelessness services there. Like there's a lot of nonprofits that operate in that area um, and like drug addiction services, like needle exchanges, things like that. Uh, is that the case in Kensington as well? Where it's like, it's kind of, it's a hot, it's a hot spot of this activity, but it's also a place where there's like a lot of nonprofit health, health services that operate there because it's sort of like this centralized area yeah i mean it is true there is like charities there who um try to help people and do harm reduction it's kind of a chicken or egg thing where it's not as if you know they set up some infrastructure for supporting uh and reducing harm among drug users and then they showed up it's like there's a crisis there's a public health crisis and people are trying to mitigate it and that's why those charities are there sorry another thing just like very technical about the stream um, the main, there's a few live feeds, but the main one that we talk about, it's situated very high up. Like it looks like a surveillance camera and it, it just pans across this corner back and forth, um, automatically. And what you see, it, it, it runs almost nonstop. And what you see is, you know, what people do there, which is they're sleeping on the streets and, and, uh, they're, um, using these drugs that uh, kind of have a visual element to them and how they impact people. And we can maybe get into that later, but it's like, it's a very dire, um, sad scene. Yes. So that's the scene. A camera is, as you say, panning across all of this. It is live streaming it. It is going up to YouTube before we get more into sort of the monetization part. I mean, what does it just look like? I mean, I know everybody listening has been on YouTube, but I feel it is worth pointing out almost what does this look like to somebody who's tuning in for, well, a lot of the people it seems to be entertainment, right? So you you have the feed and then on the right-hand side, there's a chat box. I mean, what are people saying in the chat as they're watching this live stream? What sort of the sentiment there and what are people saying? So while we were editing the story, um, Jason made the comparison to reality TV. And I think that's a pretty good way to describe the way people are 
discussing the feed. Um, so there's a live stream. That's like the video that you're watching and to the right of it, much like a, a Twitch live stream, there is a, there is a chat and people are commenting live about what they see. Um, there's hundreds of people watching um, usually uh, I've seen as much as 800. Usually it's like 400 to 600 people are, are watching it depending on the time of day. And um, there's, there's language both in the description of the live stream and in the chat by users and moderators that is like, you know, there's a lot of like pray for Kensington and like um, talk about charity. I've seen no evidence of charity, but there's talk about charity and study them help and pray for them and all of that. But I would say that is in the minority. Most of it is like really... I mean, I can't think of another word for it. It's just disgusting kind of treating them like they're characters in a movie. Um, and it's, it's just like very dehumanizing language. They, they give nicknames to specific people who they see often. Um, they uh, make fun of them. They comment on the fact that they're probably not going to live for long. Um, they call them thieves. They kind of imagine drama between his characters and and stuff like this yeah there's also a lot of people in there who are like look at what liberal policies hath wrought on our cities vibe would do you think that's fair to say yeah there's there's a fair amount of discussion of like how this happened which i think is fair if if you haven't seen this live stream and you haven't seen videos like it, this is, this is um, a live stream version of a, of a genre of, of YouTube video and TikTok video that we've seen over the last few years. Um, and I mean, it's harrowing. It's, 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 it's very, um, it, it, it kind of makes clear the disparity in this country, that there are neighborhoods that are like this. It's just so grim and so awful. And people are talking about how this happened. And some of them say they live there or they live in Philadelphia and they have their theories about, you know, which city policy made this happen. And some of them don't even live in America. And they're like, oh, wow, I can't believe this is America. And, you know, this is the result of uh, the war on drugs. Or this is the result of not having enough police officers. Or this is the result of you know, certain tax laws or whatever. Yeah, there's there's like kind of an understandable debate about the problem at large. Right. But maybe the most, not the most informed one necessarily. That's more to the community members and the experts and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so you have that horrible scene. Yes, you have the chat. Let's bring in the YouTube part because I think this is why it becomes an extra especially interesting story because it's not just about hey look how morbid some people are who watch stuff online yeah sure whatever we all know about that here youtube as the headline says is monetizing and profiting from this so i think they're doing that in several different ways how exactly does youtube monetization come into this how, how does youtube do that exactly so the primary way that youtube makes money off of this stream is the way it makes money off of anything. And that is with pre-roll ads. You watch a YouTube video, um, and before the video starts, there is an ad. I've seen ads for 
allergy medicine for insurance companies, um, very, very big brands um, that are playing their ads before the live stream. And the way YouTube works is the owner of the channel gets a cut of the ad dollars and YouTube gets a a cut of the ad dollars. That is the primary model of YouTube. Like that's why the platform exists. It's not some public infrastructure. They're monetizing all the videos that people are uploading via ads. That's the main one. Another one, which is more specific to the live stream, and I think the content of the live stream is people in the chat can pay for flares. Um, Sam knows very well this is a um, way of monetization that originates in uh, camming, right? Um, And then made its way to Twitch and has now made its way to YouTube. So you can pay to have certain animated emojis or stickers And then you can also pay to have whatever message you send appear on the screen for longer. Um, Sam, just on that exactly, because I didn't realize that. That's really interesting. Could you just explain briefly how that came from camming? Was that so uh, viewers can get attention of the person broadcasting? Like, I I fully understand how it works in Twitch. Like, I watch a lot of Twitch, that sort of thing. I kind of get on YouTube. How does it work in camming and how did it lead to, to this, if you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I think for camming, especially people have this kind of um, parasocial relationship going on with the performer. So you're trying to get their attention constantly. If you get their attention, that makes you feel special or whatever it is. Um, And that's also just how the performers and the streamers nowadays make money. Um, So you can kind of, as like this interactive element, you're not just watching someone do stuff on a screen and then like, tipping them for whatever they happen to do. You have some control over what's going on on the screen. Um, and, you know, that's something that started with uh, camming back in the early 2000s, maybe a little earlier. But, um, you know, now we see it on like TikTok is maybe the most recent iteration is, you know, the the yes, yes, yes girl. <laughs> this very, like, that's all it is, is reaction uh, reaction tips. And that's how people make a lot of money doing that. So, and it gets applied all over the place, all over the internet. Uh, people want to have that kind of the interactivity with the content that they're consuming. They don't just want to be an audience member. They want to be part of the stream. That's a big one on Twitch. It's like people want to be characters in the stream. They want to, you know, to have that kind of the relationship with the other viewers and with the person doing the, the streaming or the performing yeah and so in this case it applied here it's yes in, in this case you're taking that tool which is usually to engage with a streamer and now you're applying it to a live feed of people suffering i mean it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's fucked up yeah it's fucked up um emmanuel just a couple more things on this sort of to, to wrap up the story i think but look it's one thing for us to just look at this and you know go hey that's that's kind of crazy but what do experts and I think in the local community that you speak to, what do they think of this camera? Because these are people who work in this area, right? And with these people. Yeah, so I talked to Sarah Laurel, who um, is the director of Savage Sisters, which is a charity that does harm reduction in Kensington, Um she was incredible, an incredible person. Um, I find that people in Philly are generally um, pretty tough, um, and she was she was very tough. She's a 
a recovering drug user, uh, as is everyone who works at Savage Sisters. And she has lived at Kensington and was unhoused in Kensington and still lives in Kensington um, and helps people there every day and reverses overdoses and treats the wounds that um, people get from drug use and die from um, and really saves saves lives. Um, and I think two things that are important that I learned from her. One is that <clears throat> I think there are like broader cultural internet reasons for why this genre of content has risen in popularity. There's always been kind of this predatory, voyeuristic, exploitative genre of video on the internet. Once I posted this, everybody made the comparison to bump fights. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that yeah. old internet video series. A long, which, long time ago. Yeah. yeah, it's like a very, it's like one of the first things I remember seeing on the internet where I was like, wow, that's crazy. And that's, you know, a thing where, you know, some video creator paid unhoused people to fight. Um, disgusting, bad. Um, and people made a comparison to that. So it's always existed. But what um, what Sarah said is that people started showing up with cameras um, when this new drug entered the uh, drug supply, the supply chain called xylazine. This is a sedative that uh, veterinarians use, I think primarily on horses. Um, and it's mixed in to other drugs. I don't think people are necessarily going out there and searching for xylazine. It's that it's mixed into fentanyl and other opioids um, because it's easier to get because there has been enforcement on other drugs. Um, and for whatever reason, the effect that xylazine has on people is just visually very different. Somebody will use xylazine and they could be standing and then they'll just kind of fold over and be sort of comatose while they are um, still standing. And that created this kind of what people say, the way people describe Kensington now is zombie land. And that's kind of the, um, the way people pitch these videos, these content creators pitch these videos is they call these people zombies, which is, you know, also dehumanizing. Um, and I thought that was interesting because it kind of helps explain the internet phenomenon part of it. But, you know, this is a story about YouTube and internet culture and um, the way that people are able to monetize this content. But I think probably the most important thing that I learned from Sarah, and I think the most important thing that um, anyone listening to this might learn is that Kensington is because it's such a severe problem and such a um, severe example of drug abuse in the country, they are on the front line of this and they're ahead of other cities in terms of the crisis. And it's dangerous because, you know, the city and charities and, and police, they do try to reduce harm but the way this drug impacts people is very different. And she says that harm reduction experts and police and cities, they don't have the right protocols in place in order to reduce harm. And I asked her, like, what is the number one thing that you need in order to save lives in Kensington? And she said it's running water. It's like literally the number one thing 
that Kensington needs is running water so people can better and more quickly clean their wounds so they don't die from sepsis. And she says that the sooner the city realizes that, the sooner she can train other harm reduction experts across the country and, and we can start saving lives. And that is a problem that is you know, specific to xylazine and the drug supply at the moment. Right. Yeah. I uh, wanted to say, like, ahead. Emmanuel, that was very, like, thank you for saying that. I think that's really important. Um, I think that when we do stories about things like this, people think about whether it's legal. And I just want to very quickly say, like, it is legal to film public spaces and it's legal to live stream it. It's like, it's not a question of legality. I think it's just like a societal question of like, should we be doing this? And I think the answer is like pretty obviously no. Um, but I did just want to say that it's like, it is, it is legal to go out and film public and like any, basically it's legal to film anyone in public. There's no expectation of privacy when people are in public. And it's like, this is something that comes up all the time in all sorts of different contexts. It's just like, it's a pretty fucked up thing to do. Uh, and it's not, and I think the other thing that I would mention is that these cameras are very high def. Like these are not grainy surveillance footage. It's like very high def cameras. You can easily identify people who are going through crisis if you wanted to. And I think that that's something that is a little bit different about this because I've seen live streams of surveillance cameras before and it's like, oh, but it's like black and white and it's grainy and you can't really tell what's going on. You can tell it's a human, but you can't tell who it is. And I think the specific thing that was so jarring about this is it's like, I think it's a 4K camera. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to point that out. Sorry, very quickly, I just want to add one is I reached out to uh, Philadelphia police because one of the cameras claimed in its description that it was a hacked police camera, and it's not. Philadelphia police is aware of the camera. It's not their camera. But they also added, there's nothing we can do about it. It's legal, like Jason says. At the same time, Sarah Laurels said that, and this is her opinion, I don't necessarily endorse it, but she said it should be illegal. And she's very mad that this is happening. And I think that the reason she is mad is one, these people are her friends and she is trying to save their lives and she needs a lot of help and we need, they need more help in order for us to reduce harm there. And she is not getting it. What she is getting is people, you know, exploiting the situation for their own benefit. And it's like, it's not illegal. I think pretty clearly it is objectionable. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no there's legal cases. expectation of, of privacy in public, but a lot of these people are unhoused. Therefore they're always in public and therefore they have no privacy ever. And that is bad. Um, I think that's something to consider. Totally. I mean, just to wrap this up, Emmanuel, what exactly was YouTube's response to uh, all of this? What was the interaction with YouTube like? I asked for comment. They asked for the link. They really want to see the link always, which, okay, fair enough. And I haven't heard back since. They have not commented. They know the leave the, they know the live stream is 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 operating. They know that they're making money off of it. 
last I checked, it was still going on. Maybe they have taken it down by the time you hear this podcast, but they have taken no action and they have um, not commented. Well, look, it's it's always the edge cases that are most interesting from a journalistic, a legal, an ethical, and like a content moderation uh, perspective as well. It's like, I'm not exactly sure if someone in YouTube woke up and thought they'd have to think about damn what is our policy on a camera pointing at a vulnerable population um you know clearly suffering even though it's legal and i'm sorry but you are a massive platform these are the these are the decisions you have to think about and you have to make and if you want to leave it up i mean look that i'm not saying that's fine i'm saying it's fine that that was your decision but you absolutely have to own that decision as well as a well multi-billion dollar company right um all right, let's leave that story there. When we come back, we're going to do a couple of ones on sort of the information ecosystem in Israel-Palestine. Again, freedom of information and scraping and archiving tweets. And then the subscriber-only section is going to be about how SIM swappers are now working with Eastern European ransomware gangs. It's insane. We will be right back after this. Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. All right, and we're back. Um, as I said, we're going to do a couple of Israel-Palestine stories and we'll go to the subscriber section. The first one, uh, who wrote this? This was Jason. Elon Musk broke all the tools historians need to archive tweets about Israel-Gaza war. Um, I mean, usually when there's a modern conflict ever since you know Twitter launched, what was it, 15 years ago at this point? or whatever, um, usually what happens is a bunch of professionals and hobbyists, they fan out, they go and they start archiving everything they can, and that would be videos, you know, maybe of a missile launch or something. There'll be photos of destruction, right? And crucially, in many of those conflicts, 
um, going all the way back to like Islamic State stuff to their more recent Ukraine and also Crimea but before that. Uh, crucially, there's usually tweets, right? But something is different with this current conflict. Jason, what is happening in the Israel-Gaza war when it comes to tweets? Yeah, I mean, you and Emmanuel have done a lot of articles about how it's a mess. It's like it's a mess of fake OSINT folks. Uh, there's accusations of like AI manipulated photos, which we you know went deep on a few weeks ago. That you know have not that they're not AI generated photos. There's AI detector things that are also problematic that we talked about. And it's it's just like a big morass of disinformation, misinformation, real information, uh, things people think might be real information but are just wrong or misguided, like accidents, stuff like that. And that's just to say that it's really hard to make sense of what's going on in real time. And for all of the sort of rhetoric and actual people who have been leaving Twitter for things like Macedon and threads and blue sky. It's like Twitter is still where official accounts are posting all the time. It's like the Israeli government is there. Politicians are there. Hamas was there for a while, although Twitter deleted a lot of Hamas accounts, but we don't know what they're posting because Elon Musk didn't release any information about what they were posting, which is also a change in norms. It's like normally when social media companies detect uh, sort of concerted efforts by terrorist organizations and disinformation efforts and stuff like that. It's like they'll delete the accounts, but then they'll also release an, a report and say like, here's what happened. Which uh, is important here- because like we need to know, I mean... I guess specifically Hamas in this sense, but even more generally, like we need to know how terrorists or other groups are using social media because then research and journalists can go through that and get a better idea of what actually happened. You know, there it doesn't have to be all information is free or you ban the accounts. There is actually a middle ground, which was sort of the norm up until now. Right. Um, and then there's also like all these American agencies and international agencies that are also on Twitter and publishing, like tweeting constantly. They're just, they're tweeting photos, they're tweeting links, they're tweeting stories, they're tweeting uh, their opinions, and then they're deleting them, they're editing them, so on and so forth. And for years and years and years, there were various tools that made it very easy to archive tweets in a verifiable way. Uh, there's a, t- a specific tool called PolitiTweet that was tracking the tweets of a couple thousand politicians, big accounts, uh, government accounts, stuff like that. And anytime it was like pulling these in from Twitter's firehose, like Twitter's API, it was grabbing all of their tweets and it was pulling in like the database JSON file, which I always liked that the database is called JSON, but it's J-S-O-N. I yes, actually don't know what you. it stands for. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it, it it had like all the verifiable information about the tweets, like when it was sent, how many retweets there were, how many people saw it, what time it was sent at, like what time zone, what device it was sent from, so on and so forth. And all of those tools have been broken because Elon Musk started charging for the API back in February, uh, which broke like a lot of Twitter bots. It broke all of these archiving tools and... It also broke a lot of like third-party apps. Um, 
And it's not like he's charging us a little bit amount of money. It's like to keep these tools running, it would cost tens and tens of thousands of dollars just because of the way that they work. And therefore, they don't exist anymore. It's like this random guy. I mean, he's not a random guy. Let, let, me, uh, let me say who he is. His name is Miles um, McCain, who's the founder of PolitiTweet. He now works uh, at Stanford Internet Society, Society for the Internet, something like this, um, where he does like very serious archival work. Um, you know, he made PolitiTweet and it's like, he doesn't have tens of thousands of dollars to run this tool, this free tool out of the kindness of his heart and it's broken. And so now what we're doing is when someone tweets something and deletes it, we're like hoping that someone happened to screenshot that tweet. And, uh, you know, there's sometimes articles about you know, such and such agency deleted this tweet because it was a bad tweet. Uh, and so there's like this very ad hoc way that we're keeping track of what people are saying and when they're saying it. And in my article, I, I use this example of this guy named Hananya Naftali, who uh, I think he works for the Israeli government. There, there is some like dispute as to whether he officially works for the Israeli government, but he did work for Benjamin Netanyahu for a while as a sort of like digital consultant and then he says that he's been called onto this task force uh for netanyahu and immediately after the hospital explosion he tweeted quote breaking israeli air force struck a hamas terrorist base inside a hospital in gaza a multiple number of terrorists are dead and obviously like the the notable thing here is that he wrote israeli air force struck a Hamas terrorist base inside a hospital, which has been the subject of much dispute as to how the explosion happened. And so people jumped on this because one, he's a verified account, which obviously means nothing now. Two, he had been representing himself as working for the Israeli government. So people saw it as Israel claiming responsibility for bombing the hospital, essentially. Like that's that's how some people, many people read the tweet. He deleted the tweet and then sort of like apologized for the tweet. And, you know, it's maybe not that important that this random guy tweeted this thing necessarily. Um, he, he ultimately explained he like pulled it from a Reuters article that was later corrected. But basically, like what I'm saying is that the, the best archive, the best evidence we have that this person tweeted this is a screenshot that was posted on r slash marxist memes and it's which like, is where is... we go for all of uh you know archival content you know obviously it could be any subreddit it's just funny it happens to be that one yeah but and it's why like, are we relying on that yeah there, there's like a variety of like pe random people like loki who's a podcaster like has a version of the screenshot like there's this lebanese blogger who has a version of the screenshot and it's like this is not a good way of doing systematic historical archive work. And we're talking about a tweet that happened a week and a half ago. We're not talking 10, 15, 100 years from now when people try to piece together what happened. It's like, is are the historians going to go to our Marxist memes and say, yeah, this post from shitposter42349 <laughs> is the official historic record of what was said during this like 
traumatic event. Yeah, um, or is Reddit even going to exist? I mean, I know that's obviously right. an, an extreme hypothetical, but it shows the ultimate impact here is that in the short term, we don't have reliable archives necessarily. And in the long term, that might get even harder. Yeah, and I don't think we need to go into it, but it highlights how fragile our archives actually are. It's like you sort of always assume that the Internet Archive will be there, uh, but it might not. It's like the Internet Archive is facing a very serious lawsuit from book publishers right now. It's like archives go down all the time. Websites die all the time. They're deleted off the Internet forever. And there's this saying that's been like is kind of a joke now, but there was a saying like the internet is forever or the internet never forgets. And it's like, that's not true. The internet forgets all the time, all the time. And so, yeah, I don't know. Like it's, it's very possible that Reddit doesn't exist or that r slash Marxist memes is banned at some point by. For going buck wild with its memes. For any reason. And so this stuff could be lost at any time. Sure. Totally. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's do a quick pass on Emmanuel's story, which is related to sort of the freedom of information, the spread of information, but in a slightly different way. This says, Netanyahu's government is trying to suspend the freedom of information. Um, I mean, specifically, Emmanuel, what is Israel's Ministry of Justice proposing here because there's sort of two things there's a a specific law they're trying to do and then a slightly broader thing of attacks on information in general so what's the specific um thing that the ministry of justice is proposing so basically the government has a bunch of timetables that they have to adhere to um uh, across various government agencies. Like if you file for, if you request a permit, they have to, whether they approve it or deny it, they have to respond to you within a certain time as uh, we are all well aware because we use the Freedom of Information Act here in the States all the time. Uh, agencies can deny a request and explain why, but they owe you an answer by a certain time. And... Um, the Ministry of Justice is saying that the war in Israel is so disruptive to the normal operations of the government that they will not be able to meet these deadlines, whether it's a permit or whether it's a freedom of information request. And they're asking to suspend those regular timetables entirely until January. And that means that if you file uh, a freedom of information request the government will not acknowledge it or like start the counter on when it owes you a response until january which means you might not get an answer until march or even later because um they're often late anyway even in normal times yes that makes sense and i mean let's just get this out out of the way straight away in the grand scheme of things, you know, between Hamas's terrorist attack earlier this month and then Israel's relentless bombing of Gaza, killing thousands of civilians, including children, in response, between those two horrific and, you know, ongoing things of the latter, this story may seem on the small side <laughs> where we're going, oh, they're going to make it so they don't respond to your FOIA requests as quickly. But no, 
there is something important here, and I think one of the people you spoke to in the piece uh, touched on this as well. Why why does it matter that the Israeli government is trying to suppress the freedom of information even during a time of like crisis like this? Why why is that important to know about? Yeah, I mean, you're totally right. And it is such a huge and awful thing that is unfolding in front of our eyes that um, it's hard to um, like pick an approach to the problem. And there are much, there are far, far worse things that are happening. And I suppose also more um, important problems that we should tackle first. I wanted to highlight this because. Um, first of all, it is something that we're familiar with here in the United States. When there is a crisis, um, when there is uh, uh, when when there is a war, um, the government often uses that as an excuse to limit our rights and to limit our freedoms. And that is what is happening in Israel right now. And it is when we need this freedom specifically most. It's, it's when Israel's citizens are in dire need of understanding what their government is doing. Um, the freedom of information, quite bluntly, is not as good in Israel as it is in the United States because a lot of stuff is um, exempt for security reasons. Um, but there are many things that are happening in Israel right now that affect both Palestinians and Israeli people um, that they need to know about. It's like schools are closed. People have been evacuated from their homes. There is a bunch of arrests that the police is making based on social media posts. And this is something that um, the person you mentioned, Rachele Idli, um, uh, she is the CEO of this organization called um, the Movement for the Freedom of Information. And this is basically Israel's muckrock. They work with the public and they work with with uh, journalists to help them file FOIAs and um, pry documents from the government. Something that they did recently that I thought was really important is they got the uh, kind of police justification for using uh, water cannons and stun grenades to disperse the protest against uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and the, um, his judicial reforms. And at the moment, they're, you know, they're trying to, like, um, teachers, doctors um, are being arrested in Israel because they posted something to Facebook. And they want to find out what is happening. What is the justification here? How is the law being interpreted that you're allowed to do this? And what Israel is trying to do is delay that whole process and people people's ability to, to get those answers until next year. Um, and that's, that's, that's dangerous. Um, and I think it's important that um, obviously that they would be able to do this. And I think also important to highlight that there is an organization. There are many organizations. Uh, the uh, uh, organization is just one of many that are trying to block this right now. Um, and, uh, yeah, just that there's, uh, Israeli citizens who are, you know, trying to maintain democracy, uh, during, during this war. Yeah. I mean, the freedom, 
freedom of information shouldn't stop in wartime. You know, if anything, and certainly those examples you just laid out, it can perhaps be even more important. All right, I'll leave that there. If you're listening to the free version of the podcast, I'll now play us out. But if you're a subscriber, it's time to talk about how sim swappers are now working directly with Eastern European ransomware gangs. You can subscribe and gain access to that content at 404media.co. As a reminder, 404 Media is journalist-founded and supported by subscribers. If you wish to subscribe to 404 Media and directly support our work, please go to 404media.co. You'll get unlimited access to our articles and an ad-free version of this podcast. Another way to support us is by leaving a five-star rating and review. I forgot to add a new review to the outro script, so I'm not going to do that. All I'm going to say is that please subscribe for access to the subscribers-only section of the podcast now. Um, This has been 404 Media. We will see you again next week. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching. Fashion trends. Pep talks where we give advice. Mental health moments. And games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.